Welcome everyone to ACCA and to the launch of our Future Forum series. Uh, I'm Jessie Bullivant, Curator of Public Programs, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Boon Wurrung as the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land on which we meet today, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin Nations, and extend my respects to their elders past, present and future, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Currently, ACCA is host to Greater Together, an exhibition that explores and acknowledges the inherent challenges of working together and the often utopian ideas of collectivity through eight distinct projects. Greater Together responds to our current period of uncertainty, contemporary societal divisions, political, environmental, cultural and geographic are creating a real need to share knowledge and resources and to reassess ideas of production and organisation, professionally, socially and artistically. The Future Forum series seeks to extend these discussions around collaboration and cooperation by inviting speakers from a range of fields to speculate about how we might live, work and communicate with each other. These forums were initially proposed uh, to occur under the oak tree in Golden and Senebe's installation, Standard Length of a Miracle, a space intended by the artists to host a range of activities throughout the exhibition. But due to the demands tonight, we've um, spilled out into the less cosy space of the Acker foyer. A bit about the upcoming forums. Uh, on August 9, we'll be joined by architecture academic Jackie Alexander, who will speculate about how we might be better, might better share space and resources. And then on August 23, ACME director Katrina Sedgwick will discuss the future of workplaces for human, humans and non-humans. And our final future forum on September 9, uh, founding editor of the Saturday paper, Eric Jensen, will discuss technology and its impacts on individuals and the way we communicate. All future forums will be recorded and available on our website, and bookings can be made via the ACCA Eventbrite page. Before I welcome our guest speaker tonight, I'd like to thank the Saturday paper, our media partner, for the Future Forum series. To launch the series, uh, we've invited philosopher Peter Singer to join us to discuss how we might work together to address and reduce our collective impact on the environment. Peter Singer is often described as the world's most influential living philosopher. He's known especially for his work on the ethics of our treatment of animals, for his controversial critique on the sanctity of life ethics in bioethics, and for his writing on the obligation of the affluent to aid those living in extreme poverty. Singer has written, co-authored, edited or co-edited more than books, and his works have appeared in more than 25 languages. At the end of this evening's discussion, he will be signing his latest book, um, Ethics in the Real World, a collection of 87 brief essays on things that matter. 
These forums are intended as a space for conversation and debate. Rather than a structured lecture, invited speakers will ignite discussion with a brief 30-minute presentation in response to a theme, and then the floor will be opened to you, the audience. To lead and facilitate... Uh, to lead and facilitate the discussion this evening, we're pleased to be joined by uh, Fiona Gruber. Fiona is a writer and broadcaster who regularly writes for The Guardian. Almost finished. Uh, Fiona is a writer and broadcaster who regularly writes on the arts for The Guardian, The Australian, The Age, Australian Book Review, and explores the arts on radio with Radio National's books and arts programs. But to begin, please join me in welcoming Peter Singer. Thank you very much, uh, Jesse. Uh, very happy to be here. And uh, as Jesse said, to try to ignite a discussion rather than to give you a long lecture. In fact, I probably won't even go uh, 30 minutes because I want to make sure that we do have plenty of time for discussion. Uh, so we're talking about the future and the first question that we might ask is where are we headed with the environment and obviously if we think about that we look at what's been going on we've been aware of trends then that future doesn't look too bright. Uh, there are many different issues that we are, can be properly concerned with, but the overarching one that's been capturing our attention uh, for many years now, of course, is climate change. The impact that we are having on the climate of the planet and the many ramifications of that for specific areas of human life. So I'm going to focus particularly on climate change as I think the biggest of the environmental problems. I probably don't need to say very much to this audience to convince you firstly that climate change is real, that the planet is warming, and secondly that human activities are the a major cause, and perhaps not the only cause, but a major cause of this warming and climate change. I think the record on the first of these points is, is beyond dispute. You only have to look at a, a graph of temperatures over the last uh, 100 years or more, and you see very clearly that they have been rising and that uh, all 10 of the last hottest years since records began to be kept um, more than a century ago, all 10 of those hottest years have occurred since 1998. So there's a very clear trend that the planet is getting warmer. Slightly more controversial perhaps is the claim that human activity is uh, the primary cause of that. Uh, but if you look at the 
report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which uh, is something drawn up by uh, all of the, the, the leading scientists in, in various specific areas, has many chapters and sections on different topics, uh, and goes through thousands of peer-reviewed articles in the peer-reviewed scientific journals and literature. Uh, their current view is that there is uh, at least a 95% probability that human activity is the major cause of climate change. So even if you think, oh well, the science could be wrong, um, of course even if there's 95%, there's one in 20 chance that uh, it's not human activity, um, and you might think, well, scientists have been wrong before, perhaps really the odds are greater than one in 20, um, sorry, uh, uh, less than one in 20 that, that the scientists, uh, uh, that, that human activity is the primary cause of climate change. But even if you think that, that is not a justification for saying we don't need to do anything about it. In fact, even if you thought the odds that human activity is the primary cause of climate change were much lower than that, even if you thought they were less than 50%, I still think the right thing to do would be to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Why? Because it's a question of what are the risks that we're taking as against the costs of what we will be doing. And whereas the costs of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, though certainly significant, they may result in higher energy costs, for example. They may, as I'll say in a moment, lead to us needing to change our diet. Uh, the costs are, are not insignificant, but still, compared with what is likely to happen if human greenhouse gas emissions are causing climate change, and if they go on accumulating in the atmosphere, as they have been, are hugely outweighing the costs of doing something about it. How much are they outweighing it? Well, we don't really know all of the costs that would be involved, but we do know many things that are happening. Uh, one, obviously, is that the planet is warming. And for some parts of the world, that in itself is disastrous. If we start getting higher temperatures than we've had before. Australia had a, a record heat wave a couple of years ago with temperatures that had not been recorded previously uh, in, in the centre of Australia. Well, we don't have huge population in the centre of Australia and most of them can afford air conditioning. Um, and they're also not dependent on the weather to produce their food in the, those regions. But if we think of other hot parts of the world, if we think of sub-Saharan Africa in particular, then we find that we have much larger populations and we have much poorer populations which, apart from not having air conditioning, do rely on climate, on weather, to produce their food. So there are hundreds of millions of people who are rainfall dependent in order to grow their food. And if we get changing climate patterns, more heat, of course, means more evaporation. It means that, in fact, you need more water for the same plants to grow. But together with the changes that are predicted in our climate, we'll get greater variation. We'll get unpredictable changes in rainfall patterns so that uh, we are likely to get 
reduced rainfall in some areas. One of the areas where uh, many of the climate models that scientists are working on suggest there'll be reduced rainfall is the parts of the Indian subcontinent that are, rely on the monsoon. Uh, and the monsoon could be affected by climate change, could weaken, and could mean that many regions of India uh, and Pakistan uh, get less rainfall than they are now. And we're talking about a billion people then, um, many of whom are reliant on this rainfall. So that's one effect. We're also going to get sea level rises. We're already seeing melting of uh, the Greenland ice cap. Uh, we're seeing parts of Greenland that uh, were previously covered in ice that are now ice-free. Uh, we are starting to see cracks in the West Antarctic ice sheet. Um, just recently, an area uh, about as big as the United States uh, state of Delaware um, broke off. It's not a really big state, but still that's uh, a very significant chunk of ice um, that's, that's starting to crack. And uh, if parts of that ice sheet crack and start to drift off, they'll float to warmer parts, uh, they'll melt, and we will get um, quite significant sea level rises, which uh, will inundate many coastal areas. We've already seen what that can mean with the storm in Hurricane Katrina, which inundated large parts of New Orleans. Um, but we're going to get worse things than that happening in, again, in, in more heavily populated areas. Some of the most densely populated areas of the world are rich uh, delta regions where big rivers have brought down a lot of rich soil and they are very intensely farmed. So the Nile Delta is one, the Mekong Delta is another, and the delta region of Bangladesh uh, is perhaps the most heavily populated of all of them. These areas are uh, already sometimes subject to, to storms and floods uh, uh, that, are, that cause the sea to inundate them. Um, but if the sea were to be uh, a metre higher, which is perfectly within the, the range of predictions uh, for the, 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 the coming century and possibly even sooner if these ice sheets crack, uh, then we will have regular inundation, and of course if you get inundation of farmland with salt water, you're not going to be able to grow anything. So uh, people are worried at the moment about uh, uh, immigration, asylum seekers, uh, refugees, both in this country and in Europe. Um, but the numbers that we're getting now, large as they are, um, are quite likely to be dwarfed if we find that hundreds of millions of people can no longer feed themselves because of rainfall pattern changes or have to move because of rising sea levels. And they are, I think, quite reasonably going to look to the affluent Western nations, not only because they offer a, a better lifestyle, but they will also argue that it's the Western nations that are primarily responsible for causing climate change uh, because of, historically, their long pattern of greenhouse gas emissions since, um, the, industrial, since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and even now, on a per capita basis, although China is the largest nation in the world, in, or has the largest emissions of any nation, on a per capita basis, uh, we have, in Australia, a far higher level of emissions than 
uh, Chinese and higher still as compared to uh, people in India and higher still as compared to some of the poorer nations of sub-Saharan Africa. So that accusation that we are responsible for causing the problem does actually hit home and uh, it's going to be hard for us to resist this and resist in some way trying to compensate or make good for the damage that we've done. So these are some of the, the likely consequences for the world as it happens and it's a, a fairly bleak future in this respect that we're looking forward unless we get some really pretty strong action. Now, as you know, there was this Paris Agreement um, uh, about 18 months ago uh, where Australia and other nations agreed to certain targets for what they would do about greenhouse gas emissions with uh, Donald Trump saying that the United States uh, is leaving the Paris Agreement. Um, that's one very major greenhouse gas emitter that may not be part of this. Uh, fortunately, the other major nations, China and uh, Europeans, have said they are going to stick with it. Uh, and, but, but it's quite likely that even if the United States were in, the targets would not be sufficient. The targets, um, most observers thought, the targets will need to be ratcheted up. Um, the targets in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions to achieve the aim which was to hold global warming at less than two degrees Celsius. That being the level that uh, many experts say is the point at which things would, could get really completely out of hand, completely catastrophic, because we'll get feedback loops cutting in that then even if we do cut greenhouse gases will make things worse. So for example, we lose the ice in the uh, Arctic uh, instead of ice reflecting sunlight back into the atmosphere, we have dark ocean absorbing sunlight. That's a feedback loop, which means that the Earth would warm more even if we stopped producing greenhouse gases. Similarly, we get the permafrost in Siberia thawing and we get methane being released and methane is an extremely powerful greenhouse gas. So this is, I think, the, the, the major risk that we ought to be most concerned about. Um, some people say, well, is this an existential risk? That is, is this a threat to the survival of human life on Earth? And you can get argument about that. Some people say no, because even if these areas that I've talked about become uninhabitable because they get so hot or rainfall fails, people will still be able to live in areas that are now very cold in northern Canada and Siberia, Alaska and so on. Uh, and that may be true for long enough for us to actually do something about the problem, develop technologies to do something about the problem. So it may not be a risk to the survival of our species, although as I say it's a little unpredictable how far things could go and we don't really know. Of course there, there are other risks that are worth talking about even though there are, I think, much smaller probabilities. But uh, there has been discussion about uh, are there risks to the survival of our species and if so, what might they be and should we be taking steps to reduce those risks? And they range from uh, the possibility of a large asteroid colliding with our planet to things as uh, speculative as uh, super intelligent uh, computers, artificial intelligence, um, actually becoming more intelligent than we are, taking us over and deciding that we're the problem and we need 
to be eliminated. So uh, in between that, there are other scenarios like uh, obviously nuclear war is one we've lived with for a long time and probably most people think the threat of a major nuclear war causing the extinction of our species is lower now than it was in the 1980s in the midst of the, the Cold War phase. Uh, we can hope that's true, but uh, at the same time there are more states with nuclear weapons um, and uh, the dangers of a major nuclear catastrophe, even if not an extinction risk, are certainly still present. Um, then there are also risks of uh, a pandemic that, to which we have no resistance. Um, that could be natural, but probably now more people are thinking about the risk of bioterrorism, of somebody engineering uh, new viruses to which we have uh, no defence. So there are a number of gloomy scenarios that uh, could justify keeping you awake at night. Um, and I think that they are worth trying to think about and to do research into uh, because of, the, the, again, the size of the disaster. Whether, you know, you might think, oh, well, these are such small chances, we don't really need to bother about them. But if we're talking about not only the deaths of the 7.4 or 5 or 6 or whatever it is now, billion people on this planet, but the end of all future human existence, of all in intelligent life on this planet, perhaps, um, we could think of that as an even greater disaster because of the loss of, of all of the future, if you might say, the loss of the hope of a better future where we learn from our mistakes and have developed technologies where we can all afford a, a good life for everybody on this planet. So given this situation, given these various risks, and in particular, to come back to the risk of, of climate change and that devastation for our environment, what can we as individuals do about this? Is there something that we can do or are we just powerless? I don't think that we're powerless. I think that there are many things that we can do. Um, and I think we ought to be active and concerned about these questions. We ought to be trying to heighten awareness we ought to be getting people to see that these problems are real, that they affect not only us, not only you in the audience, many of whom are already can have a life expectancy way beyond mine, um, but also your children and grandchildren. And I think there's no doubt that climate change is going to increasingly have a, a greater and greater effect the greenhouse gases we're putting in the atmosphere stay there in the case of carbon dioxide for hundreds of years um, and uh, it's going to be very hard to get them out. So what can we do? Well, there are things we can do both personally to reduce our own carbon footprint and there are things that we can do as concerned citizens. And um, at a personal level, uh, there are a lot of different things we can do, and you've probably seen lots of charts of things you can do. Um, but uh, not many people, I think, have a good sense of, of what makes uh, uh, the bigger differences. So, for example, um, people may say, well, you should uh, not leave your phone charger plugged in when your phone is fully charged because you're using extra energy. Yes, you are, but in fact, it's a pretty tiny amount of extra energy. 
So you might feel it's still a nice thing to do, but you're not saving the world by doing that. You should change your light bulbs and get more efficient light bulbs. Yes, again, that's a step bigger than disconnecting your phone charger. Uh, it's significant. But it's still not uh, a really major thing that you can be doing. You could, uh, if you own a car, you can make sure you have a fuel-efficient car, um, a hybrid uh, that is more fuel-efficient than uh, the average car. Yes, that's also a step forward, and again, a bigger step. You could get rid of your car altogether and use public transport or walk or ride a bicycle. Occasionally, maybe you'll need a car and then you can rent one, but not use it. You won't use it nearly as much if you have to go to the trouble of renting one. That's, that's another step forward. More difficult for many people, depending on where you live and what your situation is. Another step that a lot of people don't realise um, is to change your diet. And in fact, as compared with switching your car from a, a normal car with average sort of fuel economy to something like a, a Prius, uh, efficient hybrid, changing your diet is likely to have a bigger impact on reducing your personal uh, carbon footprint, or your, I should say greenhouse gas footprint, because the gas that you're particularly reducing if you stop eating meat is methane, which is um, produced by ruminant animals, so it's particularly cattle and, and sheep uh, that are major producers in terms of, of what we eat here anyway. Um, and the world, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has said that the livestock industry is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transport sector. So uh, more greenhouse gas emissions than all of the cars, planes, buses, ships, trucks, and so on produce worldwide. And I think it's actually much easier to make that change. It's easier nowadays, at least for, for us in Australia, where we can walk into any supermarket. We have a wide range of plant-based products uh, with a much lower greenhouse gas footprint, sometimes just uh, you know, as little as 2 or 3% of the greenhouse gas footprint of, uh, for example, eating beef. Um, and uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't uh, involve the amounts of changes that would be involved in, in completely rethinking the transport sector, for instance, or the other large, the, on, the only source of greenhouse gas emissions that's actually larger than livestock is uh, stationary power generation. Um, and although that's something that we can and should be changing over, uh, and buying green, green electricity is a good thing to be doing, and putting solar panels on your roof uh, and using uh, sun to heat your hot water are all good things to be doing. Um, but in fact, uh, it is much more difficult to get that change that we need in the stationary uh, uh, energy generation. And that's something that we can't really do ourselves, although we can and should be active citizens lobbying our government to do it. And, and that's the other part of this. As well as getting our own greenhouse gas footprint down, we need to be active in terms of making sure that our government is uh, doing what it ought to be doing. And this government, I think, is not yet doing what it ought to be doing. Um, so we need to keep pressing them to see that there is uh, an electoral demand that we will vote for political parties that are more strongly committed to protect our environment than others. 
Now, there's one other thing that I want to mention uh, about the environment before I close, um, and uh, that is, is related to, to climate change, but it's also related to uh, environmental issues in general. And it's something that uh, isn't, hasn't been talked about that much in recent decades, although it was talked about a lot in the 1970s, and that's population. Uh, we had a lot, uh, somewhat, in retrospect, somewhat alarmist predictions of in the 1970s from people like Paul Ehrlich in his book The Population Bomb, suggesting that uh, we were going to run out of food in the 80s and have massive worldwide famines. Uh, fortunately, that didn't happen, um, perhaps partly because of the, the Green Revolution. Uh, but, uh, and, and then we had a, we've had a period in the last 25 years, so 30 years, I guess, going back to the Cairo conference in 1994 that some of you with good memories will remember, when um, it started to become a little taboo to talk about population as a problem. Instead, the emphasis was on uh, choice and women's rights uh, rather than on um, setting demographic targets and saying that some regions may be having too many people. Uh, but the question is, you know, given that, and of course we should be respecting women's rights and choices, but within that, are there things we can do to encourage women to make choices or encourage couples to make choices to reduce the number of children they have? Uh, and the number of children that, that people have has a huge impact on the environment and on their greenhouse gas emissions. In countries like ours, with high energy usage, um, having an extra child outweighs greatly having sort of, or put it the other way, having one fewer child reduces your greenhouse gas emissions more than all of the things that I've mentioned before, more than changing your, your car or not having a car or changing your diet. Um, that's a, a really, makes a really significant difference. But of course it's true that population in affluent countries, po population growth has come down and in fact natural fertility is below replacement level now in Australia as well as in many other affluent countries and if we're growing it's because of immigration. But there are other parts of the world where that's, uh, it's still very high. You might have noticed that at the G20 summit recently, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the newly elected French president, gave a press conference in which uh, he was asked about uh, why are the rich nations not providing more aid for Africa. And he made a, uh, a long answer which one of the things that he said is uh, if women are having seven or eight children, then uh, no amount of aid will give you a stable situation. And that caused a certain amount of outrage on the social media um, because it seemed like he was blaming African women for having too many children uh, in terms of you know, why we weren't giving aid. Uh, but I think it does need to be said that there are countries in Africa, including the poorest countries, that have very high fertility. Um, there are some countries uh, that, like Niger, uh, which is a former French colony north of Nigeria, uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, where the uh, average lifetime fertility per woman is over seven. So um, Niger's population now is 21 million. Uh, it's estimated in UN projections that by the end of the century it will be 192 million. And it's pretty hard to imagine 
how 192 million people can live well in Nigeria. It's a pretty arid sub, uh, country on the southern fringes of the Sahara. So um, I think that this is a, a topic that we need to broach again, although Macron got a lot of flack for it. Um, I think there were, and, and his statement was a bit exaggerated and too much of a generalization. I don't really want to defend it. But I do think we need to start thinking again about how many people the world can support and uh, what we should be trying to do about that. Okay, I've probably gone over my time. I'm sorry for that. I look forward to your questions and comments. Well, thank you. There are lots of one questions here that I'm sure lots of people are dying to ask you. But I'd quite like to start off by saying, yes, population control was something that was very big in the 70s and 80s, and it died down in the 1990s, and it, it sort of became taboo, as you said. What economic and political forces do you see that caused that? Because there were obviously forces at play to put population control off the agenda, and China's come off the one-child policy. We're, we're talking some very big forces here, aren't we? Uh, we are talking some big forces. I'm not sure that they're economic forces particular. In particular, I, I think there's actually were two big forces in, in making that, pushing that topic off the agenda. Um, and you could say odd bedfellows. Uh, one of them was the Vatican. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is opposed to population uh, contraception, obviously, and uh, did not want to have an agenda that pushed that. Um, and it may not have been the only religious group that uh, was opposed to it, but I think it was the strongest, most influential. And the other was the feminist movement, um, which wanted to put the emphasis back on women's reproductive health and reproductive choices. And uh, I think really played a significant role in uh, saying, you know, we have all these men telling women what to do, we don't want that, and particularly in the case of, say, if we talk about population in Africa, we have these white men telling uh, African women what to do, and that harkens of a colonialist era, and, and we don't want to do that. And I think it became a sort of not politically correct to talk about that. Um, and I suppose what I'm saying is, well, you know, that's all very well, and I understand the feelings behind that, but... Um, the populations of some of these countries are continuing to grow quite rapidly and I don't think we can just turn away from it. What role does capitalism have here though in terms of growing markets and needing more people to buy more goods and therefore uh, population control actually works against those market forces and the capitalist drive? Well, I don't think the people of Niger uh, have the money to buy a lot of the goods that capitalism produces. Uh, so I don't think that we can really blame capitalism on that particular aspect of it. And, and the countries that are most subject to capitalist uh, propaganda, commercial consumer advertising and so on, are in fact the wealthier countries. And, and there, as I said, the uh, fertility has dropped. So I'm not going to... Capitalism is to blame for a lot of sins, but I don't think particularly this one. Now, I'm sure there are lots of... I, I could ask uh, Peter another 25 questions uh, and uh, listen to his fascinating answers, but I'm sure you all have a lot of questions you'd like to ask. So, who'd like to kick off? Uh, chap here in the check shirt. Oh, okay. You can hear me. 
You should use the mic because we're recording. Oh, okay. Um, probably just picking up that last point would be that who is asking the Nigerians what their point of view is from an ethical point of view, that surely that would be the first step. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that we should go into countries and coercively uh, prevent them having children. Um, I am saying that this is a discussion that we ought to be having and we ought to involve uh, these uh, countries in that conversation. Um, in terms of, of what people want, we do know from the World Health Organization that there are, I think their estimate is about 220 million women who would like to have access to contraception but do not. Um, so that's, that's the easy part of it, I think. If we could uh, encourage countries to provide or aid countries uh, to provide contraception to women who would like to have it but don't. But that's probably not enough to solve the, the problem as I see it. Could I persist? Um, so the, my response really was at the Paris um, conference, where was the seat for Nigeria and the Nigerians and other people who were like that? Uh, they so were there. They were, they were 192 nations represented at the Paris Climate Conference. Um, so they were there. Uh, and in fact, you know, because as I said before, it's, it's really, it's, it's the more affluent nations that have the higher greenhouse gas emissions per capita. Um, uh, and that have caused most of the problem historically. And it's also, of course, the more affluent nations that can more easily reduce their emissions uh, and still have a good quality life. So that was, that's recognised and uh, the really poor nations have not been told at Paris that they have to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, they are rather being helped to slow the rate of increase by... Uh, what's called the clean development uh, mechanism, that is aid towards uh, finding cleaner sources of energy uh, where that's possible. Uh, so I don't, I don't fault Paris in that respect for telling the poorer countries to make cuts. Um, obviously, you know, as countries get a bit bigger and more significant, uh, India has to be brought into the equation. But India too is still at a much lower per capita level than uh, all of the rich nations. Any other questions about population? Person here on the end. I um, just want to talk a little bit about these poor people who have too many people, like who are too fertile. This, why is this? And I think Macron, there's a lot of stuff that Macron and like the European nation, all the rich nations can do about it. First thing I have to say that uh, the people the, in the south or the people in the poor countries um, who have the high fertility rates, they are polluting less. And the reason why they have so many children is like a lack of education, a lack of like pure poverty, which also has to do with education. It has to do with culture. Um, and what we can clearly see is the more people, the richer people get, the more educated people get, um, the less, like, less children they will have. And this will, could then get into control. So in short, yes, um, aid to Africa will reduce the problem of overpopulation, which is 
for many reasons a problem for these nations. So it's like it's really silly to just blame the poor people of Africa. They're just the problem why they are so poor. Is I just um, wanted to yeah. add this. Sure, and I, I, you know, I, I agree with, with what you're saying. Um, I think if we think about aid uh, and where it can particularly help, then I do think it's worth thinking about how best to target it. So I've already mentioned providing contraception for women who want it. Uh, you've mentioned providing aid, and I agree. Uh, one of the effective ways of doing that is by providing aid to educate girls. Um, educating girls is obviously good for the economy if it has a larger educated workforce. But it's also been shown that the more years of education a girl gets in poorer nations where girls typically don't get very many years of education, the fewer children she's likely to have over her lifetime. So again, that's, that's I think, a win-win situation. Uh, and uh, it's not a question of blaming people for having large numbers of children. Uh, and I certainly don't think it should be an excuse for not giving aid, but I think it may be a reason to target our aid in certain directions. Uh, there are two people at the back here who are... Um, you pick which one goes first. <laughs> Hello, I just have a question regarding population as an environmental policy, but more to the latter end of life, so life expectancy. I know you've talked a lot about fertility and the number of people contributing a carbon footprint to the world, but... Um, the influence of medical technological advances on life expectancy and the fact that, uh, you know, if you look at people and their life expectancy 20, 30 years ago in various countries, it's, uh, you know, medical technology has advanced that, which means a carbon footprint for more years. So I know we've focused a lot on fertility and the number of people, but what about the number of years that people are actually on the earth? Um, and that contribution to overall um, climate change. Uh, it's, it's certainly true that uh, the more years you live, and especially if you're in an affluent nation, because as I said, we, we are responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions, so the more years you live, the, 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 the more lifetime emissions you will produce. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what you're suggesting, that we... Um, you know, we, we're starting to have a discussion in Victoria now uh, about voluntary assisted dying when you're terminally ill, but um, I, you know, I, I take it you're not suggesting that when we all get to 65, which I have to tell you is an age that I've passed, um, you know, <laughs> we, should, we should just say, okay, I've had my share and that's it. Um, I don't think that that's, you know, if some of the things that I'm suggesting are already going to be hard to bring about, um, like getting people to reduce their meat consumption, um, but getting people to off themselves when they turn of a certain age is, is I think, uh, not going to happen. Um, you might say it's a reason for not putting so much money into increasing life expectancy, into medical technology that will do that. Um, and that's, that's reasonable. But, of course, it's not only medical technology that's increased life expectancy. We are seeing increasing life expectancy in other countries um, where we're just providing, you know, or there's better nutrition, uh, uh, better living standards. Um, Cleaning up pollution will increase uh, life expectancy. So uh, there are a lot of factors, and many of those things are good things that we want to work to. Uh, and I think while we may not want to exaggerate the effort we put into uh, extending lifespan, I, I, I don't think that's the most important 
place to look, really. Talking about nutrition, uh, I'd like to broach the subject of vegetarianism, which you talked about as part of a way of reducing greenhouse emissions, because there's obviously, uh, again, many powers that are, you know, are promoting meat-eating. India has become a cute, much more of a meat-eating culture when it was one of the largest vegetarian countries on Earth. Uh, at what level can one actually address that kind, those kind of forces that are increasing meat production rather than decreasing it? Yes, you're right. That's uh, a really uh, difficult thing, and you're, you're quite right that uh, not only India but a number of Asian countries are increasing their meat consumption. Um, China has hugely increased its meat consumption uh, as it's become more affluent. People have been able to buy more meat and they've done that. So uh, although actually total meat consumption in the United States started falling about um, 2010 uh, and that's the first time it's you know, not continued to increase for as long as it's been measured basically. Um, but but that small decrease is more than made up for by the increase in China and India and, and a number of other countries. Uh, it's, it's very hard to know what we can do about that um, as individuals. Obviously, we can set examples ourselves and we can, uh, if we do, and if we then start purchasing plant-based products, we create a market incentive. We use those capitalist forces you were talking about to get more companies to go into producing that. And it's been really interesting in the United States recently that some of the big meat producing companies, for example Tyson's, which is the world's largest chicken producer and also a very big beef producer, uh, recently took up a stake in a, I shouldn't say stake, I guess here, should I? It's a terrible. Um, took, uh, bought a share of a company that is involved in producing plant-based uh, products that uh, simulate meat in terms of their taste and texture. Uh, and it did so, and the, the CEO said, because this is a rapidly growing market, and uh, obviously they're wanting to make sure that they're you know, insured against the future where this catches on. Uh, uh, so um, I think that this is an important aspect, and some, you know, some of the very wealthy Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists are also putting money into companies that are uh, trying to produce uh, either in vitro meat itself, meat grown without an animal in vitro, which is estimated to have only 3% of the greenhouse gas emissions of um, meat produced from a cow, uh, or um, also uh, actually, again, plant-based alternatives that are very like meat. Uh, we already have a number of plant-based products that are very like milk uh, that are taking an increasing share of the dairy market. Uh, so I think uh, there are some steps going on in this direction. And, and that's really my hope for the future in terms of changing patterns in China or India, that uh, this will be uh, economically competitive, will satisfy the taste desire that some people still have or the cultural habits of eating meat and will be much more environmentally sustainable. Questions on this? Anyone? Person in the red, with the red hair. Um, what can I do as an individual when I have a father who, for the last 50 plus years, has been eating meat at least two meals a day? Do you suggest something maybe like kangaroo, when I've spent so much time 
documentaries and facts and all sorts of things about why vegetarianism is a better choice. For someone who won't move away from meat, what's the alternative? Uh, it's difficult. I'd be very reluctant to suggest that we should support the killing of kangaroos, which um, uh, is, is not always humane um, and uh, does have its own environmental impact, uh, I think. And uh, apart from that, really isn't, you know, maybe there's enough around for your father, but, but it really isn't a, uh, uh, an alternative to beef in terms of, you know, you would have to kill the entire uh, population of Australian kangaroos about five times over to get as much meat as uh, Australians eat uh, beef. Um, because the amount, of, the amount of, of high grade meat that you actually get off a kangaroo is tiny compared to what you get off, uh, off a cow. Uh, so, um, you know, yes, that may work on an individual level, but as I said, I'd be, I'd be really reluctant uh, to go for that. Um, somebody asked me recently, um, I was doing an interview for Triple J about deer hunting, um, since deer are feral animals in uh, Australia, so there's not, the, um, there's not the kind of environmental aspect of killing them, um, and they are free living, and uh, so, you know, if, if somebody is a good shot and can uh, actually hit a deer in the head so that the deer dies instantly, I do think that would be a better kind of meat to eat than to go down to the supermarket and just buy whatever factory farm meat uh, the supermarket is, is offering. But, you know, I just wish that you would somehow be able to get the breakthrough so your father realised he, he didn't need to eat meat at all. Uh Rabbits. Ah. Rabbits. Yes. The rabbit question. So the rabbit question, yes. Uh, I suppose it's, it's true that uh, the rabbit is an environmental threat in Australia, uh, uh, that it, in various ways it uh, causes erosion, uh, also outcompetes native animals like the bilby. Um, and, uh, and it is being killed on a large scale anyway by farmers and uh, uh, in, in, in a whole variety of ways. Uh, so I suppose if you can again get uh, rabbit meat that has been uh, humanely killed or if you go out and shoot them yourselves, that's definitely uh, a better alternative than the kinds of uh, meats that are being on sale in the supermarket. There's a question over here. So we've spoken about the food industry, but what about other consumer goods, especially the fashion industry? Um, I've been told that the fashion industry is the second most polluting industry on earth. What do you think about this and what can we do as consumers? Um, I can neither uh, affirm nor deny that uh, claim that the fashion industry is the second most polluting. I, I simply don't have that information. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, any industry that is producing goods for consumption uh, and that is encouraging us to use more and waste more is um, contributing more to pollution of various kinds, including uh, greenhouse gases, than it needs to. Uh, and of course the fashion industry has an, inf uh, has an interest in trying to get us to discard perfectly serviceable clothing because it's no longer fashionable and we don't want to be seen anymore. Even I've uh, given up my bell-bottom trousers, you see. I, not, uh, you know, maybe they'll come back, but... Um, uh, so, um, 
we, I do think we need to try and resist that. Um, we need to just wear clothes that are comfortable and serviceable and uh, timeless uh, as, as far as we can. Uh, and if not, well, there's always op shops to, uh, to get your clothing for that uh, make sure that they live longer and have more use. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, no pressure. Um, thank you. Uh, I guess I wanted to quickly ask about um, the ethics of hope in the situation. I guess as a young person I have very little faith in my government or that the necessary action is going to take place. And someone who was vegetarian for eight years kind of gave up. I'm like, why should I... I guess, like, why should I not, as, like, not as an individual, but why as we as culture should make extreme labour when I don't think the governments and the sort of larger, larger mechanism of capitalism is ever going to give a shit? Well, um, you don't only have an influence through the government. You do have an influence personally. Um, movements build because other people hear about it and because it becomes a more normal thing to do. Uh, when I became a vegetarian 47 years ago, um, I didn't, I, I, well, un until I met the person who, who talked to me, who I talked about it, who actually was instrumental in my becoming a vegetarian, I don't think I had ever met another vegetarian. Or if I had, it might have been a Hindu or someone like that who I really would not relate to in terms of their reasons for being a vegetarian. Um, so personal influence, um, creating a kind of critical mass of people who do this, uh, and as I said before, creating a market for these products, I think is important and I think it's, it's worth doing even if you don't feel that uh, the government is, is doing its, sh its share. But um, I think, you know, you started by talking about the ethics of, of hope. Um, I think that hope is empowering and uh, cynicism about this is disempowering and although I cannot confidently say we are going to succeed in reducing climate change to manageable proportions, I think I can say that if we all give up hope and say, oh, you know, there's nothing we can do, the problem is too big, then we will fail. So I think that um, it's really important until, if you like, the very last moment when uh, there's nothing more to be done. It's really important that we understand that we do have the power to work with others to bring about positive change and to continue to try to do that. And I also think, I'll just close on this, I also think that you're helping yourself by doing this, um, that you're making your own life more meaningful and more fulfilling and there's plenty of good psychological research that shows that people who feel they have purposes like that, that are worthwhile, actually are more satisfied with their life than those who don't. Well, on that note, Peter Singer, thank you very much indeed. I think we put our hands together for a big round of applause for Peter. Please also uh, extend your applause to our respondent, um, Fiona Gruber, um, for her insightful uh, responses this evening. And I'd like to invite you all to join um, Peter just over here. He'll be signing his uh, book, Ethics in the Real World. Uh, and perhaps if we have any further questions, we can uh, address Peter one-on-one. -on -one. Um, please sign up to our mailing list um, or follow us on social media for updates about our upcoming programs. But once again, thank you for joining us this evening.